I'd like to welcome you today on Sunday, Pentecost Sunday. You know, most of you are not new today. You've been walking with us as we started our Acts series, well, just about 15 weeks ago. But we're going to continue the exciting story of the early church found in the book of Acts. Now, I'm wondering by this time if if you might be able to give the background of Acts at least part one. To me, as we started off that clip this morning, it started getting a little bit um, emotional. Remembering just again a, a little bit of maybe the wonderful things that God did over 2,000 years ago. The promised Holy Spirit came and indwelt 120 of Christ's believers. The Word of God at that moment was preached. The church grew. It suffered, but somehow continued to thrive. Acts chapter 13 ushers us into part two of Acts, where the gospel not only hit Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, but it leaked into the uttermost parts of the world. The Spirit here continues to be active and a key player in this drama The church seemed to depend upon God differently, more, and tradition less. But that's going to come to a head today. Paul's message was powerful, and it was the same wherever he went. He was bold. He basically proclaimed and shouted everywhere at all times, you can have your sins forgiven. You can have a relationship with God. The God you so desire, the God you so hope to approach. (laughs) Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood for you and for me so that we might be able to, well, be rescued that he would pay our debt on the cross, that his blood would be shed rather than our blood would be shed. (laughs) That was pretty exciting. Because especially for a Jew, year after year, century after century, every time they sinned, they needed to bring an animal in. Anytime there was a problem, a sacrifice had to be made. Paul was shouting some good news. Hey, I just want you to know, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus is the one that loves us. He's the perfect Lamb of God. And He's the one that will restore your relationship with God. You therefore can live abundantly and look forward to eternal life. This is an amazing message. The message gave hope in their turbulent world. It convicted them and encouraged them in their faith and lives were being transformed. Now some of us may be getting a little bored with this introduction. But let me remind you, Paul was never bored with what happened here. He continually saw lives being transformed. Dead people, spiritually, coming alive. And that absolutely ignited him. He knew their culture was hurting. It was broken. It was filled with despair. He knew the politics and especially the Romans were so stifling. Racism and slavery was rampant. And injustice ruled. But God's plan was to send the Holy Spirit to believers and to form churches and to send them out in all the world with good news and hope. Where politics are stifling, racism is rampant, and injustice rules. 
we found out last week, if you're with us, the team went to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. Names and cities we probably don't know, but went through them, shared good news, and then came back again. Paul modeled what discipleship looks like and how to make disciples. And if the one thing that just absolutely mesmerized you last week is that Paul was doing exactly what God asked him to do. Churches were being birthed. Lives were being changed. This is all cool. But not everybody appreciated the message. And we find out that Paul literally gets stoned, rocked. Most people thought he was dead. Dragged out of the city of Lystra, all of the disciples or those believers gathered around, shared a little bit last week. What, what were they thinking? What would they do now? And what does Paul do? Is get up, walk into town, and head off for the next town tens of miles away to share the same message that was so rejected. <laughs> What's with Paul? I almost called him Saul. Wasn't that cool? He switched. Uh, never mind. Okay. But isn't that something about Paul? Why? Every one of us, maybe not, but, but most of us certainly would go home we're done. I got stoned. I get the message. We're letting somebody else preach this gospel because I'm hurting. <laughs> Not Paul. That, that so inspired me. But some issues arise. I was sharing with our team this morning that if you look at commentaries and acts, or you look at books written about how Luke just kind of shared the book of Acts. Chapter 15 usually has your longest chapters, the most commentary. It is a crudal, crucial, cowboy. This is a tough one. It is a really important chapter. And we're going to do it in two parts. We're going to hit the first part of chapter 15 today and the next part of chapter 15 next week. But before we do, and I know you're on the edge of your seats. You're on the edge of your seats, aren't you? I know you are. You're on the edge of your seats. Let's pray. Let's pray. God, we do come before you. We recognize more than anything that your word does change us. Lord, as we look in Acts, there are so many things that, well, for me, I'm convicted about. Things, Lord, that I'm not as excited as they're excited. Things that I don't embrace that they embrace. Things that seem so natural to them and are unnatural to me. Lord, this is Pentecost Sunday. It's the day we celebrate the history of of that spirit coming and dwelling every believer. It just changed the landscape, God. Father, take our casual attitudes toward that and change it. Use your word today to ignite us, to inspire us, to convict us. May your word, Lord, do something today in us that we didn't expect. That's the Holy Spirit working. That's you helping us apply your word, your principles. Oh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the history of the early church. We thank you for the history of the church through the years. We thank you for the history of this church. Things, God, that you have taught us. Things that you have shown us. But God, the very fact that we all got up today, the very fact you gave us breath, there is something that you have for us to do. You have an assignment for us. We get to partner with you as the church makes an impact in our culture. You know, Lord, truthfully, some of us want to give up on our culture. We don't like what's happening. It's upsetting 
But God, somehow you've allowed us to be salt and light. You've allowed us to be your mouthpiece. You've allowed your church to make the kingdom impact in this foul and ugly and divided culture. Oh, God, there's some good things that are happening. We know, and we want to celebrate that, but sometimes we're just so overwhelmed. So God, encourage us today. Teach us today, not only us, but all those churches in this area, all those churches all over the states, all over the world that are proclaiming your word. Oh, Father, raise your church up. Use your Holy Spirit in each one of us. Transform us. Ignite us, God. And would we, well, be like that early church, so dependent on you, so in touch with you, so being transformed on the inside out. God, that's your desire. Do that. Do that even today. We pray, dear God, that today, if there is someone sitting right now with this, within the sound of my voice that doesn't know you, God, would you draw them to yourself? Would they see how wonderful and gracious and loving God you are? For those, God, that have been too busy for you. Oh, God, we ask you would draw them back. And for those who are listening, empower, strengthen them, and even give them greater amount of fruit, dear God. We love you. We thank you for this book of Acts. And pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Paul and Barnabas are serving in the church of Antioch. As you recall, Antioch was the church in Acts 14, actually the end of Acts 13, where the elders and the people got together and sensed that other churches and other people had to hear the good news. And they decided the best candidates would be Paul and Barnabas, so they sent them out. And you have a map. And they started on the island of Cyprus and then went up all into these different areas, Antioch and, and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And then came all the way back. And when they came all the way back, they just had so many stories of God working and churches being transformed. And Paul being stoned. That was part of their story. And they were teaching the church of Antioch all of these amazing things that were going on. But we find out in Acts chapter 15, while these guys are up in Antioch teaching and encouraging the church, strengthening the church, the road got bumpy. But not like it did in Acts 14. This road got bumpy in a different way. So turn with me, Acts chapter 15. I'm going to read the first three verses to you. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screen. Acts 15, starting at verse 1. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers of the disciples. Unless, these men said, you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you can't be saved. Look at the response here. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Oh, if you underline your Bibles or words, do that there. This was not a small deal. This was absolute. They got so upset. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanying some local believers to talk to the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem and stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the brothers or the believers. And they told them, much to everyone's joy. 
The Gentiles, too, were being converted. It was basically a Gentile church, a non-Jewish church. And he came down in this area, and he just wanted people to know, hey, I just, God's doing some amazing things. Now, the scriptures tell us Judaizers arrived. That might be a new word for some of you. But Judaizers is a term of folks that add to the gospel. They not only want you to believe in the blood of Jesus saves you, but that you also have to keep the Mosaic law. You have to observe all these things. Both of these things, Jesus and Moses, oh, that brings you salvation. Well, I'll tell you, conflict happened inside the walls. Remember in Acts 13, Acts 14, this was all conflict from outside the church. There was also conflict in the church earlier in Acts, but now all of a sudden, inside the church, there were some folks that got in, some false teachers, and they began to talk about salvation way differently than Paul had been talking about it. The Judaizers' pronouncement to the Gentiles, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Understandably, this created an uproar to a holy, or mostly holy, Gentile church. That, that is not the message they received from Paul. They had already been functioning as a church. They had already been growing as a church. The Holy Spirit was living in them. And now some dudes come in from the outside and say, hey, you guys did a good job, but you're really not saved. You need to get circumcised. And not only that, there's only one of the 633 laws of the Old Testament, or give or take a few. You've got to obey all of them if you want to be saved. Now, Gentiles who thought themselves to have been saved already through faith alone in Jesus were now informed that their salvation was invalid? Basically, these guys are saying, Jesus is good, but we need to add Moses. And you got to ask the question, at least in that church, when did the message change from Jesus alone to Jesus plus obeying Mosaic laws? These teachers compromised the gospel. It set off Paul and Barnabas. Now remember, Paul and Barnabas really aren't even new believers right now, you know. They've already been God followers for 12, 13, 14, 15 years at this moment. Paul himself was the one, and you find out in Galatians, and we talked about that a little bit, who literally went to a desert and just soaked up and listened to God as he taught Paul. A very, very special time for him. Well, God had never said anything about this. Who are these people? What are they trying to do? And Paul and Barnabas argued vehemently. Oh, my word. They were ticked. The Scripture says that there was a commotion and a passionate exchange of words. How's that? Is, is that cool? A passionate. Are you kidding? <laughs> Whoa! Actually, it should happen that way. Paul understood the law really well. Remember, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees for the majority of his life. He understood exactly about sacrifice and about how to please Moses. Oh, he was so grateful for the new covenant. He was so grateful for the one uh, and complete and perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Now, let me remind you this, that this wasn't the only time Judaizers were an issue for Paul in the church. In fact, you'll read about people who add to the gospel all the time, but this was a special brand. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me over to Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, there's two verses I'd, I'd like to read for you. 
And again, just so you know, the, the churches that Paul had just planted, the churches that he went back through, that was Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, these would be all the churches that would be in the region of Galatia. So he was in Antioch when this was happening, but this kind of Judaizer stuff was spreading throughout all the kingdom. And it eventually went to the churches in Galatia. Now this is Paul writing a letter later on to this church in Galatia. And we're going to start at verse 16. We know that a person, Paul writes, is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. Not by obeying the law. And we believed in Jesus Christ so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. For no one, Paul writes, will ever be made with, right with God by obeying the law. Then he ends up, I do not treat the grace of God meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. He understood the good news. He understood there was faith in Christ's death, that he was our propitiation, that he was our sacrifice. He was the one that ultimately, for once and all, gave us access to God and forgiveness from the Almighty and allowed the Holy Spirit to live in each one of us. It was that. It wasn't the law. So the church got together, sent a delegation to Jerusalem, because right now, if you remember back then, the whole canon wasn't done, the whole New Testament, all of God's Word wasn't solidified at this moment. The people who had authority were those in Jerusalem, those were the apostles and the elders, those are the ones that lived with Jesus and learned Jesus' words. And so they said, okay, we believe you, Paul. We understand this, but we better go to the church and find out if what you're saying is right because this changes everything. So in Acts chapter 15, starting at verse 4, you can follow along in the screen or read in your Bibles. We're going to have this read to us. When they arrived in Jerusalem... Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers, who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees, stood up and insisted, The Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way, by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James stood Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted. As it is written, Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, he who made these things known so long ago. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, 
from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. Paul and Barnabas, they arrive up in Jerusalem, and they're welcomed, all of them, all their entourage, all of their committee. And Paul and Barnabas start off telling right away the stories of how Gentiles have responded, how the Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit, how the Gentile churches are growing, the non-Jewish ones, the non-Samaritan ones. Then some disciples, the Scriptures tell us, who were once Pharisees stood. And this might puzzle you a little bit. They objected and, and they spoke. Now, were these the same ones back up in verse chapter 2? I don't know. Maybe they were just there, and uh, again, these objections began to service. But the way that I see it is believers who struggle with grace are ones who have lived so long under the law. I mean, grace is wonderful when you understand it. But if you spent all your day trying to observe the laws and the rules and the regulations in order for you to be able to attain a relationship with God. When you hear grace, it blows your mind. So there was conflict. There was conflict back in Antioch, and there's now conflict in the Jerusalem church. Not just any church, but the church. It's the perfect environment for a storm. Two sides, both passionate. So what happens? The apostles and the elders meet together, as you can see in the scriptures, to resolve this issue. Leaders applied the truth, they wrestled with the issues, and they made a decision. You see, whenever you put people together, there's a potential for contention, even in the church. In fact, I would say often in the church because the enemy has its crosshairs at the church. Now, poorly informed romantics like to talk about the glory days of the early church as if the era of the apostles didn't have the same problems we face today. But an honest portrait of the church's history will find that the church was filled with conflict. Some of those places we've already idealized, like Antioch and Corinth and Philippi and Thessalonica and Ephesus, were actually in reality hotbeds of controversy all the way through the Scriptures. So the question is not whether a church will have contention or conflict. But how a church will move to resolve conflict and to bring God glory. You know, it's the same advice that I give new pastors and newlyweds. Because new pastors often, those that have just gone to seminary, those who have read all these amazing books and, and are listening to these amazing professors. And whatever church these new pastors go to, there are always problems there. Well, my church isn't going to be like this, and my church doesn't go this, and when I get a church, ho, ho, this is what's going to happen. So I smile, and I encourage them, and I say, you know, Whatever church you go to, there's going to be issues. Whatever church you go to, it's filled with people. And you're going to need to learn to depend on God greater every single day. Same thing with newlyweds. It's a little disconcerting when two people who want to get married first walk into my office and we begin to talk and I say, hey, what's your latest fight? <laughs> Pastor Rick, we don't fight. You don't fight. Okay, when's the last time you disagreed? Oh, we're in love. And I look at them. I go, oh boy. Now, I think marriage is awesome. 
But one of the things, especially in premarital counseling, you go through is how do you deal with conflict? How do you help each other when you disagree? Because in every marriage, there's conflict. In every church, there's conflict. So how do we disagree and allow God to have glory in our lives, in our marriage, or in our church? Now, let me remind you, back in Acts chapter 11, when we were in it, these issues have already been discussed. So in some ways, when they came, why didn't they just say, hey, go on back home. We've already talked about this. Why didn't you listen the first time? But they didn't. Very interesting. They gathered together, and the apostles and the elders committed to re-examine the issue. They knew by this time that grace upsets legalists. Grace is hard to understand. And I think even for them, they were all basically saved out of Judaism. So they had been following the law. I think they knew of the struggle, and they were willing to address this. Now, the Scriptures don't give us a lot of specifics here, but the Scriptures tell us that Peter speaks out and would point out observing the law is not the basis of salvation. Peter reiterated the basis of salvation is the grace of God alone, received through faith alone, made possible by Christ alone. Chapter 15, verse 11. Barnabas and Paul shared stories of true salvation, of Gentiles with transformed lives. And none of them were circumcised. James, literally at this point, we would call him the lead pastor. This was the brother of Jesus. He was the main authority in Jerusalem. Ultimately gets up, he makes a decision, and brings it together. The scriptures tell us that the Spirit led James. And he used words like, in my judgment... This is how the Spirit leads. The Spirit gives us an understanding of what's wise and what's helpful and what's true. He is our teacher. So it makes sense to the leadership under the influence of the Spirit, which we're continually talking about, to act in a certain way because of love, because of community, not to attain salvation. You see, the church, at least the Jerusalem church, those leaders there, were trying to educate the rest of the churches that they must be sensitive to what the Jews have done for centuries. It's a way of life for the Jews. They're eating. It's almost become cultural. It's really about being sensitive to others' baggage and being able to live in community with them. So Paul talks about acting out in love toward brothers and sisters in the church. Now, he's really going to say this, and you'll see this really clearly, but, but he says, may your love for the church, may your love for Jesus dictate how you live. So many of you have read 1 Corinthians 13. And Paul starts off right there. He says, hey, I, I just want you to know, if you have the gift of language, or if you're an amazing pastor and preacher, or if you have great faith, or if you're unbelievably generous, in fact, even if you sacrifice your life for the cause of Jesus, if you don't have love, it's like a noisy gong. So Paul knew the effect that loving others would do, but he gives us an example in some of his other texts, key texts for God's community. If you turn over um, to 1 Corinthians, I'm going to read to you some verses and try to explain how Paul dealt with this almost in all the churches that he literally planted. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 
I'm going to start at verse 1. Now, regarding your questions about food that have been offered to idols, what? <laughs> now, some of you know the story. But back in Corinth, one of the most impressive things was the audacious temples to the different Greek and Roman gods. One of the things that that culture would do would also bring sacrifices to their gods and always the best sacrifices. But they would only use different parts of the meat. And so what would happen in the basis of every temple, there would be a marketplace or what they would call the shambles. So they would bring their food to the pagan priests. They would sacrifice these animals and the majority of them they would butcher them bring them to the shambles and if you wanted a good steak oh, that's where you would go all right so the culture very easy everybody you get a steak ah go pick it up at the shambles go pick it up at the shambles well people started getting saved and they saw this pagan sacrifice go ooh like, am I going to sin if I eat this meat that was sacrificed to idols? So this is what Paul's addressing here. Now regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols to the church at Corinth, he's writing this. He says here, here's what he says, verse 9. But you must be so careful, Christians, that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. Verse 13, so if, I, so if what I eat causes other believers to sin, I will never eat meat as long as I live. I don't want to cause other believers to sin. You're going to find out over and over again there's nothing wrong with the meat. But to some believers, especially new believers, they thought, ooh, that, that wouldn't be good. And Paul basically says this. He goes, I just want you to know you ought to think carefully about what you eat. You have great freedom to eat whatever you want. But if your freedom hurts another person, maybe you shouldn't eat the meat. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 23. He keeps addressing this. He says, you say I'm allowed to do anything. But not everything is good for you, Paul writes. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but be concerned for good of others. Verse 31, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for God's glory. Don't give offense to the Jews or the Gentiles or the church of God. I too, Paul says, try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't do just what is best for me, Paul writes. I do what is best for others so that many might be saved. And you should imitate me. If you turn back to Romans chapter 14, I, I'm, I'm going to read just a few verses there because, again, he's addressing this to different churches, different scenarios, different things that would offend other brothers and sisters. He starts in verse 14, and I'm going to start reading in verse 12. He said, yes, each of us will give a personal account to God. So let's stop condemning each other. Decide instead to live in a way that you will not cause another believer to stumble and fall. In other words, why don't you love others? Verse 14, I know and am convinced on the authority of the Lord Jesus that no food in and of itself is wrong to eat. But if someone believes it is wrong, then for that person it's wrong. And if another believer is distressed by what you eat, look at this, underline this part. You are not acting in love if you eat it. Don't let your eating ruin something for which Christ died. Verse 19, so then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. So Paul is really saying this. Um, keeping these laws does not save you. But if you're in a church that is filled with folks who've been used to doing some of these 
dietary regulations. Maybe you ought to care for them more and not care for your stomach. Let's go on. Acts chapter 15, we're going to start at verse 22. Again, I'm going to have this read for you. Then the apostles and elders, together with the whole church in Jerusalem, chose delegates, and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas. This is the letter they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we did not send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. The messengers went at once to Antioch, where they called a general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. Then Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke at length to the believers, encouraging and strengthening their faith. They stayed for a while, and then the believers sent them back to the church in Jerusalem with a blessing of peace. Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord there. The Jerusalem church, after this decision was made, chose delegates and sent a letter back to the church of Antioch. There at that church, they called a general meeting and delivered the letter. It started off saying something like, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. If you behave in these ways, it will go well for you. Now, let me just say this. With the major doctrinal issue resolved, James, the head of the church in Jerusalem, turns to practical manners of fellowship. He and other leaders were concerned not only that the Jews would not trouble the Gentiles, but also that the Gentiles not trouble the Jews. This is called community. How then shall a Jew and Gentile live together as the new people of God? They have such different cultures, such different backgrounds. Well, first of all, Jewish Christians need to accept Gentiles who are turning to God. This is a, class, this is a very important um, uh, set of words here because it's sharing with them. There are Gentiles who are truly repenting and truly coming to faith. Don't harass them by making circumcision and the yoke of the law a necessary condition or a sign of their salvation. Secondly, you Gentile converts, you need to show sensitivity to the Jewish cultural taboos, mostly found in Leviticus. In other words, you should abstain from eating foods offered to idols. You should abstain from sexual immorality. And, and that's always been a sin, but in this context, they're really talking about the, the um, uh, temple prostitution for the most part here. Consuming blood or eating the meat of strangled animals. <laughs> this letter clearly addressed the doctrinal question that was raised by the Antioch church and gave them wise instruction on how to avoid rifts in fellowship. You can see why the message encouraged the flock and there was great joy. When these delegates left, they didn't even know if they were saved. Uh, well, they did, but it didn't sound right. 
When they came back, they understood more about God's grace and even were giving some very practical suggestions on how to live and do community or family better. Then the scriptures tell us that the leadership team began to teach. They knew they needed to understand God's word better. And they encouraged and they strengthened the faith of believers. Judas and Silas, they returned back to the church in Jerusalem. But Barnabas and Paul stayed to teach and to preach along with some others. Now I'd like to wrap this up. There is, again, a whole lot going. But there's two things I want you to take away, that just, just hang on to. And maybe God's used this text to convict you of other things. But these two things shout to me. First of all, the gospel should never be compromised. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved, not of your works, not of obeying the laws of Moses, but it's understanding that Jesus died on the cross and paid your debt, a debt you and I were supposed to pay. It's God's grace, and it's our belief in faith in what Jesus did, not what we do. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He has saved us, His grace, His love. The gospel should never be compromised. Secondly, church conflict is a blessing. <laughs> what? What? I, I think church conflicts are blessings. Well, let me share. Whenever a church goes through conflict, we who are part of the church have an opportunity to show the world what loving others well looks like when you don't agree. I think it's the same way with marriages. What a blessing to talk with those who have been married 30 or 35 or 40 or 45 or 50 or 55 or 60 or 65 years if God gives you health. It's not because they don't have conflict. One of the greatest questions to ask them is, how do you deal with conflict? How do you love each other when you disagree? And it's the same way in a church. What is love? How do we love others when we disagree with them? Well, love focuses on others and is sacrificial. We spend our time and our talents and our treasures differently because we love. You see, a church that loves others well forgives and sacrifices and focuses on others' needs, not themselves. You'll find often as people look around for churches and they come in and, and I sit down with them or talk with them and, and if they have this laundry list of things that a church is, and, and all the things they need to have in order for me and my family. And I, I, I start to get quiet. I do. Because no church is ever going to be able to do that. It's not the purpose of a church. A church that loves themselves well will have clicks and rifts and focus on themselves. There'll be crabbiness and there'll be attacks against each other and bickering among the sheep. Believers, if they truly loved well, my guess is churches would be bursting, bursting, because there isn't anyone on this planet that wouldn't want to be part of a family that loves and cares and cherishes and works out differences so that you enjoy each other better at the end than when you started. This would be a family. It would act like a family. You know, the Scriptures tell us that we will know we are Christians by our love. Not we will know we are Christians because we're friendly or we act nice. 
but by how we treat others. So, number one in this, you know, whole arena is that I think conflict is a blessing because we have an opportunity to show others what loving others looks like when we disagree. So expect conflict because we have relationships with people. Conflict from outside the walls, conflict from inside the walls. Even when you thought issues were settled, good-hearted people disagree. But harmony is possible because of the Holy Spirit, and that's what we've been chatting through. You also realize that the enemy works hard. I don't think conflict is ever easy. I think it's always unpleasant and difficult. But I also think it's worth walking through. Conflicts benefit those involved. Every one of you know, whether it's someone at work or someone in your household or a neighbor, when you're in conflict with anyone, you have a tendency to go to God more often, to listen to God better, to spend more time on your knees. (laughs) This is all good. This is all good. You know, St. Augustine usually gets the credit for this statement. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. Well, technically, he probably didn't write that. There was a 17th century theologian named Maldenius. But Maldenius got it right. On the things that were absolutely essential, we need to be unified as a church. For things that are non-essential, we need to give people liberty. But in everything, we got to love. You know what? There's a verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, a a verse we use often. But it's a verse that gives each one of us hope. And, And the hope is, even in conflict, these things can be worked out so that you will benefit in the long run. What a promise. Well, our time is up. Our time is really up. Well, let me just remind you this, that the task is unfinished. We're, as a church, sharing good news and making disciples. The adventure continues next week in the book of Acts. Trust you'll come back and join us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your scriptures. I thank you that you don't skirt issues. I thank you, Father, that, that you give us what's important. Lord, we know the gospel is critical. We know it's important. It is the means of your grace. We also know that you've chosen the church to be your ambassadors and that people are looking and there will be conflict. We pray, dear God, that that we would grow through the conflict. We would address the conflict that happens in our church and that you would be glorified in all things. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name.